You're listening to the weekly sermon from Antioch East Baptist Church, located in Magnolia, Arkansas. For more information about our faith and local congregation, visit AntiochEast.com. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21. This is what the word of the Lord says. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter, they shall not again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The first thing I want to talk about is biblical justice. I want to talk about biblical justice. And before we make any application of this text, I want to give a very clear breakdown of what this says, of what it teaches, and then after we, we see what the text says, then we can start to think of how that applies to things going on around us. So first of all, let's talk about biblical justice. The first thing that we see in this text, the first thing is the inadequacy of a single witness. The inadequacy of a single witness. This is in the very beginning of the text where we hear or we read, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. So in other words, uncorroborated testimony, one witness is not enough to validate a charge, especially what's being said. This is no statement as to guilt or innocence. This has nothing to do with that. This is, can, you, can we condemn someone on the basis of one witness. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15a says no. One witness shall not rise. It's not enough. It's not enough. Why is that? Well, if one witness is enough, I could accuse anybody in this room of anything and you should be uh, found guilty of it and judged. We're walking through the text. What does it say? The first thing it says is the inadequacy of a single witness. If you want to put this in positive terms, this is what we call the presumption of innocence. So, so in, in, a, in a he said, he said kind of scenario where there's one person saying one thing and another person saying a contrary thing. One person's accusing someone of a wrongdoing and the other person says, no, I didn't do that. And that's all you have. That's all you have. What, who should you believe? Well, the text says that one witness isn't enough, so you presume the innocence of the one accused if there's no corroborated witness, if there's, if there's no further testimony, okay? 
This is where we get our presumption of innocence that is one of the fundamental principles of our legal system in this country. This, this is where we get that. It, we didn't make it up. People who built this country read the Bible. They were, most of them were Christians, right? It, th- this comes from a biblical worldview. This is where it is. So that's the first thing, the inadequacy of a single witness. But in the second part of this verse, verse 15, we find the adequacy of multiple witnesses. So first of all, one witness is not enough, but multiple witnesses is enough. It says that uh, one witness shall not arise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So now, now we're entering into the realm of having enough evidence to condemn. Now we're entering into the realm of multiple testimonies validating a claim, multiple witnesses corroborating, and the facts are coming together. It's a similar principle if you want to talk about the Gospels. We don't just have one gospel eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. We have four. And, and they're, from, they're written by men with different personalities, different life experiences, and they all say the same thing about Jesus. Well, that gives, not even just talking about the uh, divinity of the word, just as a testimony for man, that gives a lot of credibility to the gospels, right? And what we know about the life of Christ. Well, this says that there is adequacy in multiple witnesses. One may be condemned on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's the presumption of innocence, but it's not as though we're not willing to condemn someone who's done something wrong. If there is evidence, then justice says, biblical justice says, there needs to be justice dealt. Wrongs need to be made right. Thirdly, we see the evil of malicious witnesses. The evil of malicious witnesses. And verses 16 through 21 tell us this, and they really explain for us why uh, one of the reasons it's so important to hold to the presumption of innocence, okay? Verse 16, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing. Okay, so what's a false witness? He's not using false as in they're mistaken. So, So it's not as though they think someone did something, but they're wrong. This is talking about someone who is... Lying. They, they don't believe this person actually did what they're accusing him or her of, but, but they're malicious. Uh, they want them to suffer. If there is any suspicion, if there's any suspicion, whether it's one or multiple, that someone is accusing another person of injustice, but out of emotion, out of anger, not out of truth, this is what you do, verse 17. Then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. So there are people ruling over the populace, okay? This is the judge. This is the the pastor. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. So uh, they they don't just blindly accuse the accused, and they don't just blindly accuse 
who they believe to be a false witness. They actually investigate. There's an inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness, so, so they, they do the inquiry, they, they interview people, try to collect evidence. I mean, today we have, um, we have fingerprints, photos, videos, a lot more technology than they had back then, but that's some of the things you would collect in an investigation like this. So if they find out in that investigation that someone has accused another person, not only incorrectly, but out of malice, out of hate, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, verse 19, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So if, if what you're accusing someone of would have gotten them five years in prison, you're gonna get five years in prison because that's what you are trying to subject them to. Or if you accuse someone of murder and you, you just did it because you don't like them, say it's your neighbor, hate your neighbor. You know what? They, they killed so-and-so, murdered him. You're doing that maliciously. If you get found out, you should receive the punishment as if you had murdered someone because that's what you were trying to have happen to this person. You understand? The motivation for that is at the end of verse 19, you do that because or so that you shall put away the evil from among you. If there's no punishment for malicious testimony, for people just me just accusing someone of sin and a crime just because I hate them, if there's no punishment for that, then who's to stop false accusations from just running rampant everywhere? You see, God is smart. God is very wise. And uh, in the evangelical church today, I think a lot of us don't really study the law maybe as much as we should because we know that Christ fulfilled the law and that the ceremonies of the law, the festivals, those are not for us to practice anymore. But I wanna tell you something. What we're reading right now is God's standards for biblical justice, that this is basic morality. Basic morality. So th those are the procedures to go through if you suspect a false witness. Bring them together, investigate, and whoever is wrong, you deal out the consequence for that condemnation. Now, the result of the procedures, again, as I said, is that evil is put away from you. But now look at verse 20. When you do this, when you are disciplined, as clear-headed as you can be, to follow God's standards for justice, this is what happens. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter, they shall not again commit the evil among you. So what happens when you do justice God's way? What happens? Law returns to your land or it stays in your land. There's safety if you take the whole Bible, you take it seriously, and you try to apply God's standards for justice in your country, in your state, in your county, what you have, what you begin to have, is a society where you can trust your kids to ride around the block again. That's the practical reality. That's where that comes from. It's not random. 
It's not coincidence that as we have begun to abandon these kinds of principles, society has begun to degrade. It's not a coincidence. It's, it's simply not. The result, if you are disciplined to do justice God's way, evil is purged from among you. But it's hard. Verse 21 tells us this. This is the kind of disposition you have to have when you're talking about justice. Your eye shall not pity. That There is a place for grace. There's a place for mercy. Government is not that place. Paul says that the government is, has a sword. God has given the government to wield a sword. And the sword is for justice. And it's to put the fear of God in wicked men. That's what government is for. And so judges cannot show pity. That doesn't mean that they have a 99% conviction rate. That's not what that means. But what it means is that they must leave their emotions aside. They must leave their personal opinions aside. They must be just. They must be disciplined. Don't show pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, toenail for toenail, pink bicycle for pink bicycle. It's justice. It's basic justice. And God has written that basic justice on everyone's heart, and so I know you understand it. I know you understand it. So that's a brief exposition of this passage. The inadequacy of one witness, which is to say that we presume innocence, but the adequacy of multiple witnesses. If there's enough evidence, yes, you convict. We want justice. Third of all, the evil of malicious witnesses. We have these guidelines because men are evil. And there are not simply people who would uh, wrong others positively, but there are people who would make false accusations. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. That's biblical justice. Now, I want to talk to you about false justice. And specifically, I want to talk to you about what's called the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement. You've probably heard that. You've probably heard it in the news. You might have read an article, christianpost.com or something about it. The Me Too movement began with a woman named Tarana Burke. And it was popularized a couple of years ago by a woman named Alyssa Milano. And here's basically what the Me Too movement says. It's talking about sexual assault. And, and, it, and the Me Too movement says it's much more prevalent than we believe. And uh, you're a victim of it, and me too. I've, I have suffered from that as well. What One of the taglines of the movement, perhaps maybe the main one, is the tagline, believe all women, or just believe women. The idea is that there have been men in power, people in power who have abused their power, people have suffered for that, right? And so because of that, we need to believe. It's a brave thing when someone comes forward exposing that kind of evil. I think you know what I'm talking about. And so we need to believe them, right? Okay, that's the movement. And before I say anything else, let, let me go ahead and say that kind of abuse, it, when it happens, that kind of abuse is evil, it is horrible. And let me tell you something. Deuteronomy 22 says that someone who commits that kind of act should die. That's, that's the biblical standard for that. 
So yeah, the, there, there have absolutely been, and there are people, men, who abuse their power to get what they want. There is no question about that. And it, it does not hurt my conservative bones to admit that. It doesn't, because it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And if someone hearing this right now has experienced that in the past, I'm sorry. Absolutely am. I'm absolutely sorry for you. And I want you to keep listening to the end of the sermon because I think I have a lot of hope to give you in spite of such circumstances, okay? Now, I can, I can say that. I can admit that there are problems in the world, there are wicked men in the world, and bad things do happen. I can admit that without buying into this movement. And let, let me explain. I think there have been some well-intentioned people involved in this movement, but, but I'll tell you what, I think that the movement is very dangerous. And, and here's why. If we're going to run off the assumption, if we're going to run off the tagline or the, the, the bottom line principle that we must believe all women, what are we doing? Maybe unintentionally, but what are we doing? We're abandoning the presumption of innocence. You saw this last year in the Justice Kavanaugh hearings. Now, the point has nothing to do, the point has nothing to do with what actually happened. Here's what the case was. We have a man who is accused of horrible things. I can admit they're horrible things, absolutely. We have a woman who is accusing him. We had one witness against a man, and we, we had no corroborating evidence. And again, that's not saying whether or not something happened. I'm just saying there's no one. No witnesses, no pictures, no videos, no fingerprints, nothing. No one else there, no one to back up a story. So what you have, what you have is one line of testimony and another line of testimony, and that's all we had. Now, what are we to do with that? You believe the accused. Why? Because I hate women? I must, if I'm going to say that. No, because I believe the Bible is good. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it tells me that one witness is not enough to condemn. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm not thinking through this with my stomach. I'm not thinking through this with my emotions. I'm saying here is a tough situation in the world, and what does God's word say? Now, how do I apply that to this situation? This is called thinking biblically. This is called submitting yourself to, to God and living according to God's standards. The presumption of innocence. That is one thing that this movement is losing and has lost. So the movement is about justice. The movement is about justice. And if, if you hear a, see an interview on the news, see someone supporting the Me Too movement, you're going to hear a lot of justice language. We, we want things made right for women. I, sure, absolutely. I, I agree with that statement. Yes. Who doesn't? There's no one in this room that doesn't want that. So there's justice language, but the movement is not about justice. If you're not about the presumption of innocence, you're not about justice. You're simply not. 
Let me try to drive this home a little bit for you. What happens when you abandon the presumption of innocence? Where you have a brother who's sold into Egypt and then accused by Potiphar's wife, then he has to spend years in prison for it, right? That's what happened with Joseph. You had Potiphar's wife who accused. Joseph didn't do anything, but there's no presumption of innocence in that society, and so Joseph goes to prison wrongfully. You say, well, what about the times in Scripture where where someone did do something. Well, yeah. And if Joseph had done that to Potiphar's wife, he should have been killed. We can hold to standards of biblical justice. Let me give you another one. Matthew 26, the trial of Christ. Go read later, Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. Christ was accused in the court of the Pharisees by malicious witnesses. He was accused by malicious witnesses, uncorroborated testimony. That led to his crucifixion. Now, we're thankful that Christ died for our sins, but Peter says, yes, Christ was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God, but he was put to death at the hands of wicked men. You want to know the cost of abandoning the presumption of innocence? How about the death of Christ? How about the death of God on a cross? Because what happens is when we are not disciplined and we do not abide by biblical standards of justice, anything can go. Anything can happen. And even the only perfect man who ever lived can be put to death when we do that. Not only in the abandonment of this presumption of innocence, but this movement is also not actually concerned for the punishment of those who actually do harm people in that way. California. I think most of us could probably agree that, there's, that California could be the seat or the prime example of a government who is sympathetic to, to this kind of thing. Let, let me tell you what California's standards for punishing abusers like this are. This is Penal Code 261PC. In California, for committing this kind of crime you get a minimum of three years and a maximum of eight years in prison. If it's a minor, it's a minimum of seven years and a maximum of 13 years for that kind of abuse. And I'm talking about the worst kind of abuse. No. How about castration or death? If you abuse someone like that, if you take advantage of a child like that, that's biblical justice. That's not what this movement wants. They're not actually interested in bringing justice to evildoers. They're not. They're not. Simply not. I hope you see, I hope I've been level-headed this morning with our examination of Deuteronomy 19. I think I've represented the movement correctly. I think that I've affirmed the evil of that kind of abuse, but at the same time demonstrated that we cannot abandon actual justice while we are concerned for people, right? As a final burden this morning, I want to address a concern that I think is legitimate, and that is this. What about those, so so we presume innocence, right? What about those who get away? Because that's really the big heartstring of the movement. There are people who get away with stuff like this. There are. How is justice accomplished in those cases? When you presume 
innocence, sure, you're gonna prevent some false accusations, but there are gonna be some legitimate accusations that might never even see justice fulfilled. So how do we deal with that? I'll tell you how we deal with that. You put your eyes on Christ, who is the true and greater judge. Let me read a few verses to you. Acts 10, verse 42. And Christ commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to, ju- to be judge of the living and the dead. What does that tell you? It tells you he's going to judge everybody. If you're alive when he comes, he will judge you. If you die, you still don't escape the judgment of God. Acts 17, verse 31. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By who? By the man whom he has ordained, Christ. He will judge the world in righteousness. Romans 2.16, And the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. By who? By Christ. By Christ. Romans 14.10, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Of who? Christ. Who? Everyone. Everyone will be there. Christ will judge everyone and everything. Final verse, 2 Timothy 4, 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Listen, people do get away on earth. But the guilty never truly get away. They never get away. There there is no case. There is no case where someone gets away with sin or in, in this specific instance, that kind of abuse. There's no case. An earthly judge might not get them. The, the Supreme Court might not get them. The, in Israel's day, the judges and the priests might not get them. But Christ does. Amen. Christ absolutely does. And I want to tell you something. Even instances of abuse that no one ever even knows about, just the two people involved know about, Christ knows and Christ will judge, and he can judge it much better than we can, and his judgment that he will enact will be much more furious than anything we can deal out. The guilty never get away, and that's why, that's why I can come to Deuteronomy 19. I can think clearly, I can think level-headedly, and I can seek justice in the world, but I can rest in Christ while I presume innocence. That's why I can be okay with not being able to tie everything up together in the universe. I can be okay with not being able to make everything right in the world. If you don't believe in Christ, if you don't believe that Christ will come one day to make everything right, then you might have a lot of anxiety about needing to make everything right here. You might 
feel a compulsion to abandon the presumption of innocence so that no one gets away. But we know Christ is coming. We know he is perfect. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is our faith in him. It is our faith in a changeless, omnipotent, all-knowing Christ that gives us peace in the presumption of innocence. Because it's not our job to bring balance to the universe. That's Christ's. It's Christ's. Our job is to be faithful, to do justice where we can, but simply to be faithful and to trust that when Christ returns, he will make everything right.